RTHK News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Sean Kennedy. Tonight's headlines. Beijing condemns talks of a separation of powers in Hong Kong, saying it's an attempt to turn the territory into an independent political entity. Health authorities report a coronavirus outbreak at a Taiwan industrial building and concerns are raised over the sedition law used to address to arrest pro-democracy activist Tam Tuck Chi. Beijing says people who claim Hong Kong has a separation of powers are trying to challenge the constitutional order of the SAR and resist the central government's comprehensive jurisdiction over the city. It also makes a link to calls for Hong Kong independence, as Timmy Sung reports. After Chief Executive Carrie Lam and Education Secretary Kevin Young said last week that there's no separation of powers between the executive, legislature and judiciary, the Bar Association described the claim as unfounded and inconsistent with the ambiguous provisions of the basic law. Others, including pro-democracy lawmakers, said the city's court had reaffirmed that Hong Kong does have a separation of powers. But in a statement, the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office says this has never been a case in the SAR, and the matter was already set in stone by Deng Xiaoping in the 1980s. A spokesman says that while Hong Kong adopts an executive-led model, this doesn't preclude a check-and-balance relationship between the administration and the legislature, as well as judicial independence. But he adds that judicial independence does not mean judicial dominance or judicial supremacy. The office says some people in Hong Kong are trying to confuse the public by advocating the concept of a separation of powers. It says the aim of these people is to expand the power of the legislature and the judiciary, undermine the authority of the chief executive, reject Beijing's comprehensive jurisdiction over the SAR, and turn Hong Kong into an independent political entity. Health officials say a small-scale COVID-19 outbreak has erupted at an industrial building in Taiwan, with up to 30 people working on one of the floors there being placed under quarantine. Five more people linked to the Transport City Building cluster have tested positive, raising the total number to nine. Dr Chuang Shukwan is from the Centre for Health Protection. For the sixth floor, because there are um, 12 uh, tenants, and um, we found cases in four of them, so we think the sixth floor uh, tenants are maybe at a higher risk than other people. That's why we um, put them under quarantine. As for the other floors, we are distributing uh, specimens to, to test whether there are other cases in other floors. The new patients are among 11 new coronavirus cases recorded in the SAR today. Five were detected through the government's citywide COVID-19 screening programme. Solicitor and legal scholar Eric Chung says a colonial-era law against seditious speech used to arrest activist Tam Tak Chi yesterday may not be in line with the Hong Kong Bill of Rights or the Basic Law. The principal law lecturer at the University of Hong Kong says many remarks could be regarded as seditious because of the loose definition of the offence. Wendy Wong has the details. Eric Chung told an RTHK radio program that a legislation on sedition was enacted after the 1967 riots, but hasn't been used since. He said when the law was passed, there wasn't any protection for human rights and free speech in Hong Kong. He said it's unlikely the offence would now be in line with the Bill of Rights Ordinance or the Basic Law. Mr Chung pointed out that the wording of the offence was loose as raising discontent or disaffection among the people of Hong Kong could be regarded as seditious intention. He noted that people with opposing views often get into heated arguments and what they say could easily violate the law. 
He also questioned why police targeted only anti-government voices. But Executive Councillor Ronnie Tong told the same programme he didn't think the sedition offence violated human rights, as is stated in the International Bill of Human Rights that people's speech could be restricted by law. The ICAC says it's charged a police sergeant with defrauding the force's credit union out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. The anti-graft body says 51-year-old Lee Hong Fat repeatedly failed to disclose that he'd taken out loans from banks or other financial institutions before the union lent him a total of $600,000. The policeman is also accused of using an illegal bookmaker to bet on horse races. He's due to appear in court on Wednesday. You're listening to RTHK. The time is five minutes past 11. Researchers at Chinese University have warned that COVID-19 can stay in the body and people can remain infectious even after they've been cleared of the virus in their respiratory samples. Priscilla Ng reports. Experts from the university's Faculty of Medicine investigated the stool samples of 15 local COVID patients between February and April and found that three of them continued to have gut infection up to six days after respiratory samples came back clear. This means that even after patients appear to have recovered, they may still be infectious as the virus can remain and multiply in their gut for a period of time. Professor Paul Chan, chairman of the Department of Microbiology and associate director of the Center for Gut Microbiota Research, has this advice for coronavirus patients. We advised uh, even though people are discharged from hospital and you should be aware that uh, there's there could be a period of time that you may still shedding the virus. So your personal hygiene, especially in the toilet, and uh, is very important. And all the contaminant uh, areas should be cleansed with uh, proper disinfection. Professor Xu Chen Ng, an associate director at the center, says the university has offered free stool tests to more than 2,000 children arriving in Hong Kong at the airport since March, and it's found that even though several of them were completely asymptomatic, their stool contained the coronavirus. Many of the patients, some of them who actually have negative on the sputum, on the respiratory sort of a swab, we are able to detect the stool positivity um, in sort of the children. So if we had not done the stool test in some of these children, they would have been missed in the population and they would have gone home and stayed with their parents or their grandparents. And this could potentially cause higher transmission in the family as well. Professor Ng says the government should consider conducting COVID-19 stool tests on young children ahead of the resumption of schools later this month. She says stool tests are safe, non-invasive and generally very accurate in picking up the virus in people who may be asymptomatic. The university says it has set up a center to assist the government in providing COVID-19 stool tests for those who would need extra help and it could handle up to 2,000 samples a day. A group representing those working in the events and entertainment industries has called on the government to provide more subsidies and relax public gathering restrictions in order for them to survive. Joanna Wong has more. I don't really remember how it feels to be performing anymore, says Ronnie, a guitarist from the local band Mister. He says the last major concert he did was way back in May last year. And he's just one of many events and entertainment industry workers 
who say they need immediate help from the government. The Hong Kong Events and Performing Arts Professionals Federation says many have been left struggling due to the double whammy of the coronavirus pandemic and last year's social unrest. The group says more than 40 percent of companies that have spoken to said they were closing down or planning to suspend operations for up to six months. A convener for the federation, Billy Chu, says he hopes the government will provide one-off subsidies to production firms and freelancers in the industries based on their cancelled events. For example, every organizer has signed an agreement, a rental agreement, with the prestige venues in Hong Kong. For example, the convention centers, maybe the key tech, and also the Asia World Expos. We would like to work out with the governments because the events industry, you know, the, is very complicated. And the project among start from maybe like 100,000 to over a million. The group is also urging the government to gradually relax its restrictions on public gatherings and be proactive in lending out venues to revive the industries. The lawmaker representing the performing arts and cultural sectors, Ma Feng Kwok, reiterated his call for the government to do more. What we are now asking for the government is to take a more sympathetic attitude, to treat them in a fair attitude, to look at and to try to... Uh, make reference to what they have done to other industries like the food and beverage industry, like the tourism industry. But why single out this event management and entertainment business? They're part of, the, of our community and they're vital in supporting the so-called vibrant city and uh, creative community. Mr. Ma warns that the longer these industries are left to fend for themselves, the less likely they are to recover, adding that Hong Kong will be the ultimate loser. Joanna Wong with that report. Government advisers on the environment are questioning why two separate authorities have come up with completely different estimates on the numbers of Chinese white dolphins off Lantau, even though they use the same method for their calculations. The Agriculture, Fisheries and Conservation Department says it counted 47 dolphins in 2017 after construction began on the airport's third runway, with this figure rising to 52 last year. But the airport authority says it spotted around 70 dolphins two years ago, and this later dropped to about 40. Professor Nora Tam, who's the deputy chairwoman of the Advisory Council on the Environment, says the discrepancy needs to be explained. In public's eye, they will say that um, different people doing different survey and get different results, and you're just picking the best for you to present to the public. So I think you need to really address uh, why the result is so different between different uh, groups, and also even the trend is not comparable. And I think that's something you need to explain, and then you need to find a way to let the public understand what's going on. The airport authorities, Peter Lee, says different sampling dates may produce different results. We do need to look into more years to see whether uh, those are the percentages. I think for the, for the recent year, I think, of course, as uh, the Dolphin expert have been assessed during the EI stage, the Dolphin do move away from the project site. And uh, so the, the target is actually to have the marine park decimated and then get the um, attract the open back to these uh, this marine park areas. The 
Overseas now, the British government is planning new legislation that would override a key section of the Brexit withdrawal agreement signed with the European Union. The bill would remove the legal force of new customs arrangements for Northern Ireland, which were agreed to to prevent the return of a hard border with the Irish Republic. News of the proposals comes ahead of another round of UK-EU trade talks on Tuesday. Here's the BBC's Chris Mason. Around a year ago, you may, may remember back then, all of those rows about the border on the island of Ireland. How do you, after Brexit, keep that border between Northern Ireland in the UK and the Republic in the EU open, as set out in the Good Friday peace agreement, not have checks once the UK has left the EU? The withdrawal agreement found a way round that. And the way it did that was ensuring that there would be some checks on goods entering Northern Ireland from the rest of the UK. And some were very uncomfortable with that, but the government signed up to it. The Financial Times reporting that the government is planning new legislation uh, and that that would override that part of the withdrawal agreement as well as some obligations uh, regarding state aid. Now speaking to those in government I'm told that this is a sensible fallback option in case the ongoing negotiations break down but this legislation will be introduced this week. Now Labour are saying that this is yet another example of what they describe as the Prime Minister's fluid relationship with the truth. There's little doubt that this appears to be an explosive intervention, although government sources are insisting this is not intended to derail the talks. The BBC's Europe editor Katja Adler says the news has not gone down well in Brussels. If you have this international treaty, which was only recently signed a few months ago, between the UK government and the EU now being undermined by UK domestic legislation, you can expect a very strong reaction, not just here in Brussels, but in Paris and Berlin and elsewhere. We've heard time and again during the current trade negotiations, which we know anyway aren't going very well, but we've heard from the EU's chief negotiator that implementing the withdrawal agreement, the Northern Ireland process, protocol is a key trust issue between the EU and the UK and he said it's also key to having successful trade negotiations but I've been speaking to sources here in Brussels and one key EU diplomat said to me you know it's not just about trust it's not just about credibility but if this UK legislation undermines the Irish protocol this could lead to the unraveling altogether uh, of these trade negotiations he called it a self-defeating strategy uh, by the UK and of course this comes just on the eve of the eighth round of trade negotiations. The EU trade negotiators are about to pop onto the Eurostar and join their UK counterparts in London this week. This report will not help ease the atmosphere. And a reminder of our top stories tonight. Beijing condemns talk of a separation of powers in Hong Kong, saying it's an attempt to turn the territory into an independent political entity. Health authorities report a coronavirus outbreak at a Taiwai industrial building and concerns are raised over the sedition law that was used to arrest pro-democracy activist Tam Tak Chi. The news from RTHK. RTHK, Radio 3. It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. Former Chief Executive Tung Chi Wa's think tank, the Our Hong Kong Foundation, is calling for comprehensive changes to the Liberal Studies curriculum secondary schools, saying the subjects failed to achieve its objects of fostering critical thinking and open-mindedness among students. The think tank says the subject should be rebranded, integrated studies removed as a core subject for university admittance and changed to a pass or fail mark in the DSC exams instead of the current grading system. 
However, a spokesman for the student group Education Breakthrough, Isaac Cheng, told Jim Gould that he disagrees that such changes are needed. I think that a lot of Hong Kong students have a huge breakthroughs and also a huge improvements on the critical thinking after the Lupo study has launched. And even a lot of Hong Kong students can put up a clear statement that whether at any point of positive and negative and state clear in their essays or DSE examination. So I think this is a really clear training for the critical thinking in the Lupo study and this is no doubt. Uh, do you think it's fair to say that the teaching of this subject uh, could have encouraged anti-government protests? I didn't think that actually it's the education who leads to the anti-government protests, but the government itself, because these subjects is only teach about the uh, news and also teach about how do you criticise some things or even to think of or maybe to care about the things that are happening in the society, but not telling any specific stance or opinions for you. So I didn't think that the pro-establishment camps or the government should blame the liberal studies for making so-called the students radicalise or even joining the anti-government protest. So is the teaching material reliable? I mean, what, what about uh, letting the government vet all of the teaching materials? I didn't think that it's a good thing for the government to vet all the teaching materials because actually the teachers are professional. They have training at the universities or even after the university schools. And also they have the abilities to decide or even to create their own teaching materials. And I think a lot of Hong Kong people will think that the Hong Kong teachers are professional more than the education bureau. So I didn't think that the education bureau should set for every teaching material. It will decrease the diversity of a teaching material. It has been argued by some teachers and also some students that the curriculum is too broad. Um, what do you think about that? I think this is a good point, and uh, sometimes that liberal studies school curriculum sometimes be too broad. But uh, every subject has their points of improvement. There is some space for improvement, including Chinese, including mathematics, or even English. So uh, this cannot be a reason to maybe downgrade a subject or even take the subject out of the main subjects that the new. Uh, higher level students must be studied. So you wouldn't agree about uh, removing liberal studies as a core subject for university entrance? I definitely disagree because critical thinking is an important skill that the students have to learn about. And uh, actually when you get into the university, you need those skills in order to have a sufficient or a all-rounded academic training inside. So I didn't think that kind of ability should be eliminated and liberal studies should keep. Isaac Cheng from Education Breakthrough speaking to Jim Gould. The Vice President of the International Olympic Committee, John Coates, says the postponed Tokyo Olympic Games will go ahead next year with or without COVID. He says they'll begin on the 23rd of July no matter what and will be the Games that conquered COVID. The IOC had earlier said it would not delay the Games beyond 2021. Anna-Marie Evans asked our Tokyo correspondent, Julian Rao, how the IOC is planning to make these Olympic Games happen. They're going to be 
very careful. Um, there's a lot of talk about uh, introducing new regulations to make spectators keep their distance from each other. I think there's going to be a lot of uh, uh, hand sanitizers, for example, uh, provided. They have been talking about you know, how this might happen, and I think this is the best plan they've come up with so far. But one of the issues was also the athletes having to train and the, the chances of the athletes in their home countries um, having a heightened chance of getting COVID. Absolutely, yes. I think those, uh, those concerns haven't completely gone away. Um, the government here has said that uh, they will do everything they can uh, to enable all the athletes who have qualified to come to Tokyo, um, give them access to the Games, to enable them to compete. Uh, but, of course, these will, they will have to be tested before they come into the country, um, and they will be tested regularly while they're here. They're going to be coming into close contact with other competitors, organisers, and, and just everyone that's involved in the entire process. So... If there is one positive case, there is a good possibility that it is more than one positive case. Now, how do they propose to make this happen? They're saying, you know, that, that it's going to be with or without COVID. It's going to be the games that conquered COVID. This is according to John Coates. And uh, also, you know, th th he's cross-comparing, you know, the reconstruction games after the devastation of the tsunami in 2011. Um, do you think it's foolhardy? It's a very brave proclamation. We've got to give them that. Um, the, the, the reconstruction games after the earthquake is a completely different issue. There was obviously a great deal of loss of life and damage to infrastructure, but that was something that could be rebuilt, and they had a long time to do it. They had nine years to do that. Coronavirus has struck a little over six months before, or less than six months before the games were meant to start, and it's a completely different creature. This is a, obviously a, a virus that attacks people and can be spread. It's invisible. There are so many things that they have to take into consideration. I think they're being very optimistic, shall we say. I've spoken to a lot of people, and I think the sense amongst a lot of Japanese people and Tokyo residents is this is too dangerous. Um, there's been uh, a couple of spikes in cases um, in Tokyo in the last uh, couple of weeks. People are concerned, and they some many, many people feel that it's just too much of a risk to take. People coming into the country from overseas, if it was maybe just limited to the athletes and the officials who had to be here, then maybe that would be more palatable, more acceptable to people. But it might extend to spectators as well. And if you have tens of thousands of spectators descending upon Tokyo, eating out in restaurants, staying in hotels, using the metro system, that, I think, becomes too much for a lot of Japanese people. Yeah, I know that they're looking to simplify the opening and closing ceremonies um, and also reduce the number of staff and delegations from each country. But there's also the issue of trying to make these games happen i mean it's a logistics nightmare you know you've got thousands of people that are employed you've got things to get ready um you know all the venues the accommodation the planning so i mean i don't envy them so i can understand why to a certain extent there is this slight case of optimism but do you think that they just have to wait another six months or whatever and then decide whether they're going ahead or not it almost sounds as if the, the Olympic Committee have made their mind up, this will go ahead no matter what. We're going to grin and bear it um, and hope that they get lucky to a certain extent. I think there has to be some of that in there as well. Um, 
I, I think that, uh, that they're going to get into the early part of next year and they're going to reach a date. I'm sure they've already got it penciled in on their diaries. They have got to get to a date where they have to make a decision one way or the other. If things have got much, much worse, both globally and here in Japan, then it would be extremely foolhardy to go ahead with the games as in, in, in any form and they would have to cancel them. Maybe we've come up with a, vi- with a, a vaccine by then. Maybe the, 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 the entire virus has begun to run its course. Maybe death rates and infection rates are, are low enough that they decide it's worth taking a risk. But maybe it's not. And that is the decision they will have to make probably in maybe early March. Um, and then they will have to stick with that decision because there will be no going back. As Israel struggles with a surge in coronavirus cases, a new scheme is trying to provide support for lonely COVID-19 patients who are isolated from family and friends. A pilot project at a Jerusalem hospital recruits volunteers who've recovered from the virus and therefore have antibodies who can visit the patients. The initiative, thought to be a world first, may now be extended to other hospitals. The BBC's Tom Bateman reports. A code to get into the coronavirus wards at Hadassah Hospital. In a holding area, Shuki Rock gets geared up. He is an ordinary member of the public going into the heart of the COVID-19 area to help patients. Assisting with getting a cup of coffee or, or some water or just helping out moving things around, doing some cleaning, you know, around the patient's chair or table. Uh, mentally, emotionally, they're, they're just all alone. Inside the sealed ward, Shuki appears on a video link to ask staff outside for help. He wants some extra bottles of water for a patient. The project, a world first, says the hospital. My wife and I were diagnosed and um, we were sick. Hadassah came out with this idea of having people who are now healthy, who had coronavirus, and have antibodies to walk in into the wards and volunteer. And uh, we looked at this together, my wife and I, and we said, that's what we've been waiting for, I guess. And it's just a, it's a chance to, to give something back. There's a monitoring room full of computer screens. Staff can see each COVID-19 patient. They're treating around 100 as Chief Nurse Yevgeny Frank Kamenetsky does his rounds. He's busy. Many staff here have themselves had the virus and shift patterns are punishing. Staff pressure only adds to the crippling sense of isolation for those they're treating, he says. All the patients are very lonely. They have nobody inside, no family, no friends, no one. Only the staff, and the staff are dressed like aliens. So it's, it's very important for them that someone can come, sit near to them, and talk to them. And there was this one person who I walked into the room and said, hello, how are you? I told him I'm a volunteer, my name's Shuki, I'm a volunteer. And I said, how are you feeling today? And he, he basically looked up and he said, how am I feeling? And he burst out crying, and for about 10 minutes he was just in tears describing frustration, not knowing what's going to be. They have about 30 volunteers who are accessing the wards. They've all been tested to ensure they have the antibodies triggered by the virus. They've also donated blood in case that can help others. But the science is still unclear about just how much or even how long people may have immunity from having had the virus. And that is why all the volunteers here wear exactly the same protective gear as the nurses. 
He's been called the world's loneliest elephant by the media. His name is Carvin, and he's been kept in captivity for the past 35 years in Magasa Zoo in Pakistan's capital, Islamabad, many of them in chains. The zoo became notorious for the state of the animals inside and was finally closed down by order of the High Court in May. Carvan caught the attention of many campaigners, including the American singer Shur, who have been lobbying for his relocation. One of those is Mohammed bin Navid, a volunteer working with Friends of Islamabad Zoo. He's been speaking to the BBC's Claire McDonnell. We're all uh, very glad and very excited and everything has happened very quickly. And uh, in the last week, as you know, uh, the veterinarians from Four Paws have been here in Islamabad on the invitation of the government itself. And uh, they're doing medical checkups, the first ever medical checkups of all the remaining animals in Islamabad Zoo. And uh, the first uh, one was Kavan. Kavan's medical results are in and he is good to travel. And now um, all we're waiting for is for the Free the Wild team to come in and prepare him for travel for six to eight weeks because that's how much time it'll take to train him to actually accept the crate and accept being uh, taken to another location and uh, have a smooth journey all the way to his new home. And how hard has it been for you? I mean, you've been campaigning for years. I mean, not only um, this poor elephant, Kavan, but, but other animals as well who have died because of the state they were kept in in the zoo. How hard has it been for you to, to watch his plight? It's been very difficult. I personally hadn't visited the zoo for quite a few years for this exact reason, that uh, you'd go there just to fulfill your desire to see uh, wild animals or wildlife, and you go there and it turns out to be a depressing uh, you know, experience. So when the opportunity came up last year to actually try to improve the conditions at the zoo, I jumped at the chance and all of us, all the volunteers, we've been working um, at least three to five times a week, we did surveys at the zoo, and we would look at the condition of the animals, whether they had food or not, whether their enclosures were clean or not, uh, things like that, what their health condition was, and we'd report to uh, the managing authority at the time. And it took about a year of surveys to convince the court that yes, conditions are so bad that these animals need to go somewhere else, and something completely drastic has to happen at the zoo for things to change for the future. Those stories were part of the Newswrap program, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Sean Kennedy from our newsroom. The government is conducting a public consultation on the 2020 policy address. Please share your views on different policy areas. We are willing to listen and engage. For details, please visit the website www policyaddress.gov.hk Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December We'll have moments to Absolutely. Moments to remember. Nostalgia. From now all the way until 1 a.m. with Ray Cudero. The one and only Ray Cudero. <laughs> oh, I, I enjoy this. Old favorites. Liberace Piano.
not fool ourselves. He's a great man at the piano. Liberace. Love is a many splendid thing. Welcome, Jim. Jim Reeves. Most of all 